0: Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us.
1: Now, this evening is our 19th sermon in our sermon series on the life of Abraham. And our text this evening is Genesis chapter 20, the entire chapter, verses one through 18, page 14 in your pew Bible. Now, we have seen the way in which Moses has set this contrast between two saints, Lot and Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, all the way through chapter 20. And Abraham is far out in front. He followed Lot's domino-like compromises one after the other. From that point that he chose the lush Jordan Valley for himself, ending in disgrace in a mortuary-like cave. Abraham, despite some testing along the way, when he passed off Sarah as his sister to Pharaoh and the entire affair with Hagar grows ever larger. He builds altars in the land, claiming it in the name of the Lord. He rescues his kidnapped nephew from an invading coalition of Eastern Kings. He receives the blessing of Melchizedek, King of Salem, believes the Lord promised that the sun would come from him and that his descendants would be like the stars of the sky and that faith is credited to him as righteousness. He witnessed the flaming presence of God in a unilateral covenant as the Lord in his glory passes between the flayed sacrifices. He undergoes the covenant of circumcision, has his name changed from Abram to Abraham, and Sarai, to Sarah, as God promises that it is Sarah indeed who will bear a son by Abraham. He's offered hospitality to the Lord and to angels in his own tent. He hears the Lord promise that Sarah would have a child by the same time next year, and then passionately pleading with God for Sodom which brings about, through his intercession, the preservation of Lot and his family. Now, in all of this, Abraham rises as a pattern, a paradigm of faith, of whom the pastor in the New Testament sermon to the Hebrews celebrates in chapter 11. It's from this perspective that provides the background for Abraham's sad conduct now, with the pagan king abimelech indeed his his failure comes so breathtakingly fast and the thing is it's around the time that sarah would have conceived isaac who was to be born within that year he's risking a lot here but so what has happened what was there a crisis that forced Abraham's hand? Sadly, no. But it's a more serious danger. It's the danger of old habits that refuse to die. Well, chapter 20 begins shortly after the destruction of Sodom and the Dead Sea cities. Now, Moses does not tell us how long which would suggest a short-ish period, and Abraham moves now in search of new pasturage for his livestock. First, he, he leads his people south into the plains of the Negev, and then spending some time farther south in line between the oasis of Kadesh and Shur. Now, we have heard of Shur before. It's the wadi, the oasis, that Hagar rested in, and the Lord appeared to her. It's in that no-man's land between the great defensive outwork of Egypt at the eastern Nile Delta. In other words, Moses again quietly shows us how Abraham has moved slowly outside the boundaries of the promised land. And that's our clue. He turns slightly northeast, of the wadi of Shur, to settle for a time near the royal city of Gerar. This is a Philistine city. It's the Philistines, the first time they appear in the Bible. But still the wrong side of the border with the promised land. They're recent immigrants to the coastal plains of the eastern Mediterranean. Therefore, they're an unknown people to Abraham. And that's the clue, you see, that's the rub. Unknown, uncertain outcome, an anxious future. And what's so surprising is how Abraham returns to the same sinful deception he had used in Egypt, right after he had received the covenant promise of both land and descendants. And now, here we are decades later, Long after receiving God's visitation, the explicit confirmation of a son, almost circling in the calendar the delivery date, and he returns to his old standby deception. Even more, when we recall how strongly chastised he was by Pharaoh, who basically kicks him out of Egypt in a stark grammatical construction in the Hebrew that sets a real strong contempt toward Abram and this device of misdirection. So let's consider again then what is going on. Why did Abraham sin in this way? What happened at Gerar? That's the first thing we should ask. Now I think If we're going to begin to answer this, we don't have to search very far into Bronze Age, Middle Eastern culture, but rather to search our own hearts. I think all of us will admit that there are certain sinful behaviors that hang on in our lives. Each of us has our own points of weakness. You know what they are for you. I know what they are for me. There's a temptation to sin that may not appeal to another, but is a deadly lure designed by the evil one just for you. And we see that here in Abraham. He's under pressure. So he trusts in himself rather than God. Now, these days, we're always told to be positive about ourselves, to have a confidence about ourselves. So what's wrong with trusting yourself? Well, notice what happens. This confidence in himself leads him, what? Leads him to sin. And that's the key, you see. It's some kind of confidence in yourself outside of the hand of God. I mean, generally, he trusts God, doesn't he? Believes in the covenant promise. He's trusted in such a way that he's been declared righteous, and has eternal life. Abraham trusts knowing his need before a holy and righteous God and is justified, but now we're talking about something different, aren't we? We're talking about his sanctification now, aren't we? His growth into holiness. And when he's pushed... He thought it would be better to be practical and pragmatic to ease passage by disinformation. The logic is simple. Lord, I trust you, but... But... I just want this to get sorted now. And that's the thing, isn't it? Such self-trust, which is actually distrust in God can have no place in a believer's life. Self-trust, which ultimately becomes a distrust in God, has no place in your life as a believer. Abraham is called God's friend, but he has yet to learn to trust God alone. So God, his loving Heavenly Father, is working toward that goal, He's our Heavenly Father moving Abraham toward that goal to trust in God alone. Now we know what this can be like. He uses an entire population in order to make it happen. Because we each of us has our own angst concerning our own deceptions. We've misled others to maintain control of a situation or lie in order to ensure our comfort or allow a false impression to persist so that others will think well of us So we realize that the Lord can work in our lives in exactly the same way. So let's see how God intervenes in Abraham's life. Now, God has made an unconditional, unilateral covenant with Abraham. And here's the great comfort for you and me as believers, because Abraham's faithfulness cannot overturn it, cannot abrogate it. So God said this, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Therefore, God intervenes, doesn't he? He comes suddenly to Abimelech in a dream. Now, listen to his words literally translated. You are a dead man. You are a dead man. Well, I don't know about you, but that's going to get my attention pretty quickly, don't you think? So God has Abimelech's undivided attention. And though dreaming, you can just imagine how the king began to sweat as he responds. Lord, would you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Notice how Sarah has played her part in the deception as well. This is old habits, aren't they? having identified Abraham as her brother. And seeing Sarah and Abraham have no children and only being able to go by their word, how is Abimelech to imagine that they, what they said was untrue? Therefore, his heart and his hands were unclean. He had no relations with her. And this is where it gets fascinating in the text, you see, because we find out later on that there was something wrong amongst the people of Gerar. He hadn't touched her because there was something wrong in terms of his ability in intimacy, indeed, amongst his entire clan. It's only through the intercession of Abraham, as we'll see, that changes that. So not only did God come to Abimelech in the dream, but he also made sure corporately that no one could actually perform any act of intimacy while Abraham and his clan sojourned with them. So Abimelech is telling the truth. And God informs the king that it is his omniscience and his omnipotence that's been at work. And it's kept Abimelech from violating Sarah. And in verse 7, the king Must return, Sarah. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But you do not return her. Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now notice what's happening here. Here is faithless Abraham. God has made this unilateral, unconditional covenant. He's working in this larger sense of providence and grace in the people of Gerar, And he still uses Abraham as his instrument because this is the first time the word prophet appears in the Bible. Abraham brings the word of God to these people and he intercedes in prayer for these people. He's the forerunner of all the great prophetic intercession. Moses, Samuel, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, they all have that characteristic hallmark. The word of God is brought and the power of prayer that has such great effect. The return of Sarah to her husband and her husband's prayers are the only hope for Abimelech and his people. Now the confrontation that follows, it's mourning. And Abimelech is Intent. So the narrative here rises in irony, you see, because the Philistine pagan Abimelech has acted more righteously than righteous Abraham. The king summons Abraham and implores him with a speech full of shock and indignation Why have you done this to us? How have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? What did you see that you did this thing? Notice, Abimelech's references are to us, to me and my kingdom. So we get that sense of this comprehensiveness of God's admonition. His concern is for others endangered by Abraham's lie. Abimelech's how have I sinned against you is weighted with this moral earnestness. You have done this, to me, that ought not to be done again shows that he understands God's law. And as concluding, what did you see that you did this thing? allows Abraham to explain. And in that moment, all that we've been witness to through the account of Abraham from chapter 12 to chapter 19 vanishes and evaporates like an early morning mist in the sunshine. All before this pagan Abimelech. And his response in verses 11 to 13 reveal how completely Abraham has misread Abimelech and Gerar. What does he say in the text? I heard there were no fearers of God here. But what do we find? That these guys were God-fearers. Indeed, they had that sense of God's hand, that Abimelech in his dream understands who this is immediately. So the irony is laid upon Abraham. His prejudice got the better of him. Because Abraham's fears are grounded in his own momentary lack of respect and awe for God, therefore he thought he had exclusive rights to God. If he had shown a proper awe of God, understood the comprehensiveness of his omnipotence and his omniscience, he would never have lied. And eventually this, she is my sister, deception has been a part of Abraham's life all the way through. So he's really quite less of a saint than we might have concluded from those preceding chapters, isn't he? And here he had little or no witness with Abimelech and his people who were, after all, a microcosm of the nations that were to be blessed through Abraham. He has no credibility left whatsoever. A low time indeed, and all coming back to Abraham's door. Now this, coupled with righteous Lot's catastrophic demise, is very sobering to us, isn't it? Lot was so attached to the world that though stressed by violence on the one hand, sin on the other, and both coming together in one, he hung on to the world for dear life, right to the bitter end. Abraham, the righteous man, par excellence, but in Gerar the old habits come back. And that habitual sin overcame him and erased his witness. Now, Moses is doing this for a reason, isn't he? He's telling us that their lives also contain that warning to the household of faith, the church. It's entirely possible for the righteous, through their sins, to erase their witness to the world, either permanently, in the case of Lot, or temporarily, in the case of Abraham. Now, The good news is, is after this, we never hear of Abraham doing this again. Instead, his life increasingly became one of deep dependence on God. And it results in this ultimate display of the sacrifice of Isaac that we will come to soon. Hebrews 11 says it like this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And that's how we end, really. Moses ends his narrative with God's grace. Because why? Because all isn't lost. Even in this lapse in moral failure. And we read in verses 14 to 16 how Abimelech showers gifts on Abraham. And consider what they mean in offering Abraham land, land, Abimelech removes his alien status from Abraham. It's now possible for Abraham to go as a citizen amongst these other god A thousand secles of silver was an awesome monetary gift. Fifty was the bride price. This was the price of twenty brides. So his folly is met with generosity. From Abimelech and his people. And grace also goes out to Abimelech in the verses that follow. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> and also healed his wife and female female slaves that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech, and here it is, because of Sarah. Abraham's wife. Now, I think that this healing grace is a precursor of grace to someone in that Philistine village. Certainly they saw the awesome power of God, and they saw then how everything was restored, and I think they went away knowing the Lord. And certainly they saw the grace in Sarah as well, because some years later, earlier, Sarah had said, behold, now the Lord has prevented, literally closed me from bearing children. And here we have it, the same kind of language. He had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech. And so the Lord removes his chastisement on these Philistine women. So what is the biblical principle Moses wants us to learn God's ability to use even our sins for his own purposes shows that he doesn't simply love us for the great things we can do for him. Now, I discovered this week in my reading that there's an additional verse to the children's hymn, Jesus Loves Me, that I didn't know. And I remember learning Jesus loves me on the old oriental carpet in Sunday school when I was about five. And here's how the verse goes. It captures this aspect of God's love perfectly. Maybe you've heard it. I don't know. I'll give it a try. I won't sing it. I'll just say it. Jesus loves me when I'm good. When I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad though it makes him very sad. Heard that? No? Yes? Somebody? I wondered if someone might. Yes, indeed. You know, it's so common to think that God will love us more if we perform some great work, some external achievement. But the Bible, and here in the story of Abraham and Abimelech, focuses where? On sanctification, on making that Great heart, and here God was working in Abraham to create an unusual dependence upon Him. One commentator says this: He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. This is why God's plan so often seems to be different from our own scripted our lives, and the stress comes when you're doing your best to serve God, doesn't it? Interruptions that plague your prayer life, family times that are ruined by illness, the resolution to do things differently in the new year concerning Bible study or prayer or whatever, all go awry. You want to do something for God, but even more, God is doing something to you in your heart. And one of the ways he does it is by showing us and others our sinfulness, our habitual sins. They're embarrassing, aren't they? Humiliating even, especially if we are in positions of leadership. But in that way, he gives us an opportunity to repent, doesn't he? To speak plainly about the gospel, that there's only hope there for a sinner like me. Jesus loves us when we're bad, as well as when we are good. And our failures become the testimony to testify to that amazing fact. How Abraham and Abimelech become a showcase for the grace and goodness of God to his sinful children. Always working to develop hearts of holiness. In them and in us. Amen. Thank
0: you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church. Ancient truth, real people, new life.